From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Should students be allowed to celebrate their cultural diversity at graduation? We are not trying to replace the cap and gown, and we want to give and allow flexibility for schools to determine when something is disruptive. What state lawmakers are considering and what students at one school have agreed to do, at least for now. Then, as consumers, we may think we're making choices that are good for the environment. But is that actually the case? So a large part of the challenge for consumers is that what they think might be especially effective is not necessarily the most effective thing. It can sometimes be difficult to tell what actually is the best course of action. And later, farming ice. It's a skill and it's an art and it's a science. Colorado Public Radio brings you more, more voices, more context, more connection to the people and the stories across the state. I'm Carl Bielek, executive producer of Colorado Matters, and I'm excited to be part of the growth here at CPR News. When I say Colorado Matters, that's really what it's all about. I grew up in Colorado, and it's a privilege that we get to go beyond the headlines and delve into issues that impact lives, sharing the stories of the people who make our state the unique and vibrant place it is. Whether it's politics and policy, environment and discovery, or Colorado's thriving arts scene, our team is committed to delivering exceptional variety combined with insightful discussion. This kind of work is only possible because members do more than listen. Members choose to support the news and music on Colorado Public Radio. Join the community of support today at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. A Grand Valley High School senior wanted to wear a stole honoring her Mexican heritage at graduation last spring, but she was told she couldn't. The controversy thrust the town of Parachute in western Colorado into the national spotlight. With another graduation coming up, Colorado Matters Western Slope producer Tom Hess checked in on what's changed and what might still happen across the state. Naomi Pena Villasano did walk at her graduation ceremony last year, and in violation of a school policy that was ultimately upheld in court, she wore a stole featuring the flags of Mexico and the United States. The controversy leading up to graduation prompted state and national headlines. Naomi visited the Capitol in Denver, and lawmakers pledged to address the issue. Amid all that attention, the Garfield County District 16 school board said Naomi raised legitimate issues about graduation policies that warranted evaluation ahead of the 2024 ceremony. We really want to focus on being able to celebrate our school, but also who we are as people as well. That's Brooklyn Milius. She'll be graduating on May 25th. She's the student body president at Grand Valley High School and was part of the student leadership team that reviewed the policy over the past few months, as was Rosalinda Valdez. It was just nice to all come to an agreement to as a class. We all got like included. We all had a say in it, right? So we was just like, it was nice that we got to get like a say in how we're going to graduate. 
Rosalinda says they looked to Colorado Mountain College for guidance and settled on a plan to address both diversity and uniformity. Purchasing stoles that covered the range of cultural identities in that year's class. Graduates could then pay to keep them if they wanted, or the stoles would be held onto for later seniors. There was like African American, Hispanic cultures. There was one of pride, LGBTQ. In using cultural stoles purchased by the school district, Brooklyn says the students are hoping to balance the value of the class diversity with the unity that comes from a dress code. Even so, the stole that prompted this conversation would still not fit under the new policy. That's because it was custom-made. The Grand Valley seniors are hoping this new policy works for everyone. And note that students can still decorate their graduation caps however they want. I would say that we are trying to stick together as a school, as a united front, because we should all, you know, it's a graduation. Everything you wear at your graduation means something. And since we're all graduating together, they should probably all mean the same thing. So there should still be a way to be individual. That's your cap. But actual regalia, we should be uniform because we are all Grand Valley Cardinals. It would just be nice to all look like a class, like one class, and that we're all just heading and graduating, but after graduation, obviously doing our own things. But that this is where it starts, like where we graduate and then move on and do our own things. Brooklyn was just an observer when Grand Valley High School made headlines last year, and she thinks the spotlight was instructive. Personally, I was a little surprised because I'd never thought of that before. You know, and you don't really think about those things, maybe because I don't really have a specific culture that I adhere to. But, you know, I didn't really think about it. And, you know, when it was brought up, I was like, hey, you know, maybe we should think about it. And I think it's probably a good thing that the classes themselves get to choose, that my class got to get together and say, do we want this or do we not? Um, I think it's very important, you know, for like self-advocacy and stuff like that. Over the range in Denver, a bill introduced to the legislature could head off any future controversies like the one Grand Valley High School saw last year. House Bill 1070 would permit graduates to wear items of cultural or religious significance. It's an expansion on an earlier effort that did the same for regalia of tribal significance for Native American graduates. We were specific in the bill. That's Representative Elizabeth Velasco. Her district includes Parachute, where Grand Valley High School is located. What are the protected classes under the First Amendment and protecting culture and protecting religion? so that students are able to wear items to their graduation that feel authentic to them. Uh, We are not trying to replace the cap and gown, and we want to give and allow flexibility for schools to determine when something is disruptive. Naomi Peña Villasano, the student at the center of the initial debate, joined Velasco at the Capitol last year. Now that I look back... It's kind of like heartbreaking to see how there are a few people who supported this so much and now they don't care, Um, especially a lot of graduates that are like, oh, I don't care. I already graduated. But I I don't know. I think it's just the type of person that I am. And just because in general, like this is about humanity, like it's about our rights and our freedom of speech. And Like, there's a lot to it that, to me, it's like I'm not going to go down without a fight. Naomi will be back in Denver to talk about the bill, which is set to come up at the end of February. She's attending Colorado Mountain College, and she says her ongoing dalliance with the legislative system 
has made her consider a career in law or policy, but for now, she's going to help in other ways. This community needs a lot of work. And I mean, it's the same with, with many other communities, right? And in other districts, but for sure, this place, it just, it has a spot in my heart. And like for now, I do want to stick to social work, but I have thought a lot about political science and, um, you know, becoming a lawyer and working in civil rights. In Grand Junction, I'm Tom Hess, CPR News. That was Colorado Matters Western Slope producer Tom Hess. When we come back, as consumers, we may think we're making choices that are good for the environment. But is that actually the case? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. It's Black History Month. Find stories from the Black community and Black creators on CPR podcasts, Systemic and Off the Walls. I just felt like I had a responsibility to think about people who fought for racial equality. It was like my blossom season. Like I was opening up to become this woman. It feels good to be heard. It really does feel really good to be heard. Listen to Systemic and Off the Walls wherever you get your podcasts. Westerners are concerned about water supplies. Half of people in a conservation in the West Pole say it's a serious crisis. But that doesn't mean people make choices as consumers that line up with those concerns. We're going to talk about that with the psychology professor. But first, Colorado Matters producer Rachel Estabrook takes us to a laundromat that aims to convince customers that their clothes can be cleaned using less water. The sun shining through a wall of windows at the front of Laundry on the Facts in Aurora. The owner here is Yamani Habtizgi. He's in a blue mechanic suit. He bought this laundromat in 2010 so he could be his own boss. And then when I look at it, I love it. And now I like to develop laundromat for the rest of my life. Habtizgi grew up in Eritrea, which shaped the way he thinks about water. I grew up in a city in Asmara. They have running water. But in the villages, I see a lot of people, they carry water or they use donkey or any other source to bring water to their homes from the river. They did that miles-long trek every other day. So when Habtiski moved here, he already knew the value of water. On top of that, he lives in Aurora, which is steadily growing and worries about where it'll get its supplies in the future. When Habtizgi took over this spot, he replaced all the top-loading washers with front loaders that used half as much water. So if I can save water, I save life. But his customers were not happy. Habtizgi says the main complaint was people couldn't see the water swishing around anymore. A lot of customers didn't come back. The business lost money. We tried to save water, but we lost our business almost. In here today, I ask a customer named Connie, who lives in Aurora, whether she'd be bothered if she couldn't see water going around in a washing machine. Would you feel like the clothes weren't being cleaned? Yeah. Yes. I want to see it. Really? <laughs> I want to see my suds and all that. In general, people are not inclined to make sustainable choices if it goes against what we believe to be true says Lee Van Boven, a professor of psychology at the University of Colorado Boulder. We form these associations with what works and what we have confidence in. And when that changes, we start to question whether it is as effective. It's notably true when it comes to cleanliness. People 
tend to think that when products are good for the environment, especially cleaning products, that they're less effective. We've been conditioned to smell a certain artificial scent and associate it with being clean. Van Boven says what's ultimately most environmentally friendly is consuming less of something. Because there's really no way to produce things that we consume without having some kind of environmental impact. And yet people do not like being told to consume less, especially with water. For Habdizgi, it was scary to lose almost all his business back in 2010. To save laundry on the facts, he had to get rid of the new washers that customers didn't like. It cost the business about $50,000. But he found a way so that he didn't have to compromise on his desire to cut water. It is a part of business. You have to listen to the customers. They teach me a good lesson, and then now... And instead of uh, more small machines, we have bigger machines and a lot of people that can use a bigger laundry in one machine. That means we save more water. Today, Laundry on the Facts is thriving with bigger front-loading washers. They can help people save water even if you have laundry at home. To wash a bunch of blankets or dog beds, you can take them to a laundromat. Wash them all at once rather than using dozens of gallons per load washing them one at a time at home. And these big washers Habtizgi has now are also front loaders, which the EPA says are the most efficient by far for water and energy. Most importantly, customers like Connie are happy. They're beautiful. I love it because I can put all these clothes in one machine. I asked Habtizgi, why do you think people are happier with these ones than they were with the first batch of water-efficient washers? They have the clear windows, the glass, they can see water. When they see the water, they feel very comfortable. The swishing, of course. Now we have more customers than before. Better technology, not really a broad change in attitude, has meant Hoptisgi can keep the business and save water. Rachel Esterbrook, CPR News. Now let's talk more with Professor Leif Van Boven, who you heard in Rachel's story. He studies environmental decision-making at CU Boulder. Welcome to the program. Hi, Chandra. Thanks for having me on. What kinds of sustainable choices are people willing to make? And by contrast, which ones are usually off the table? I want to first of all just kind of acknowledge that the nature of this conversation is actually quite different than we might have had 15 or 10 years ago. So the vast majority of people recognize the reality of climate change, are concerned about taking actions to address climate change and to take actions that are more sustainable. So we're not really having this debate that we used to have about whether these are even real concerns that we should do something about. Instead, we're having this discussion about what are the best actions that we can take. So the first point that is really important to appreciate is that the most important thing we can do to reduce our um, climate impact, to make more sustainable decisions, is simply to consume less, right? It's not so much about do we consume a more sustainable um, brand than a less sustainable brand, but the first question we should always ask is whether it is possible for us to consume less. So then let's turn to this question that you asked about what are consumers willing to do and, and what are they unwilling to do? And in some ways, I think the question of willingness can be a little bit misleading. It suggests that consumers are stubborn and unwilling to make sacrifices 
in favor of sustainability or, or to better the climate. If we look at what the research says, it's probably fairer to say that for many consumers, it's difficult to identify what the best courses of action are. So there was a series of studies, for example, where researchers surveyed consumers and they asked consumers, what are the most impactful things that you could do to uh, reduce your energy consumption or reduce your water consumption? And consumers tended to identify what are known as curtailment activities. So curtailing their behaviors like turning off the lights, taking shorter showers, turning off the water when they're brushing their teeth, turning down the thermostat in their house. When the researchers asked the experts the same question, though, what the experts said is that the most impactful behaviors involve efficiency improvements. So things like replacing appliances with more water efficient appliances, installing heat pumps rather than old furnaces and air conditioners, um, buying electric vehicles rather than traditional fossil fuel consuming vehicles mm. and so on. So a large part of the challenge for consumers is that what they think might be especially effective is not necessarily the most effective things. And it can sometimes be difficult to tell what actually is the best course of action. How does that translate into water? Are there some water conservation steps you found that people are generally willing to take and some they aren't? There are a number of steps that are relatively easy to take, and we hear about these whenever we are in the midst of an acute sort of water crisis. So we hear that we should take you know, shorter showers, turn off the water when we're brushing our teeth, let our lawns go brown, and so on. All of those behaviors are relatively easy to adopt in the short term, and many people are willing to do them because, again, consumers care about the environment, they care about sustainability. But over the long term, those curtailment activities are going to have less of an impact than things like installing new appliances, you know, installing new washing machines, installing new toilets, xeriscaping a lawn, and so on. Part of the problem, though, is that for many consumers, those changes are really expensive and are likely to be out of reach, both because of cost or if you don't own your own home, you often can't make those kind of renovations that would really have a much larger impact. How much do you feel peer pressure plays into all of this? Yeah, well, peer pressure can work in a number of, of directions. So in some places, like where I live in Boulder, there's a lot of peer pressure, um, social norms, we might refer to it, to reduce our water consumption. It would definitely be frowned upon if you left the tap running while you're brushing your teeth, or if in the midst of a drought when everyone else is conserving water, you had an incredibly lush lawn uh, because you were watering extensively. In other communities, the peer pressure can be different. Um, in other communities, there might be a lot of value on relatively high water consumption, having everything look um, green and, mm. and lush, even in the midst of a drought. So peer pressure is definitely something that, that we as consumers respond to, but it can work both ways, sometimes increasing more sustainable behavior and sometimes kind of working against it. Did the pandemic change the likelihood that someone would make a sustainable consumer choice? For example, did one huge disaster eclipse another in our decision making? Yeah, that, that great question. And and the implications of the pandemic, we're, we're really just starting to, to realize. And um, I, I want to kind of broaden the answer so that's not just about water, but about climate friendly behaviors generally and sustainability generally. And I think we can see a couple of important lessons from 
the way we responded to, to the pandemic. First of all, we were able to transform the way society operated in a really short period of time. Who knew that we could move so much of our work lives to a fully remote modality to mm. cut down on transportation? That should lead us to be more ambitious in how we think about restructuring society for a more sustainable future. At the same time, the massive change in the way we operated by increasing social distance, reducing social contact, uh, reducing economic activity had really negative impacts on so many aspects of society. You can look at the spike in mental health crises, the loss in education among many students who simply weren't able to learn as well in that remote environment, um, mm. the loss of relationships and social contact. And so even though it's possible to make these changes really quickly and to do so on a large scale, we really need to weigh that against the potential costs of implementing those changes. As we wrap up, what do you think it takes to change people's behavior in a meaningful way? So we want to think about this through two lenses. One lens is the lens of the individual consumer behavior. And one of the things we need to do is we need to make it really easy for people to understand what are the more sustainable choices that they make in their everyday consumption behavior. So we need to provide people with clear, reliable, trustworthy information about the environmental impact of their consumption decisions. The second lens, and in some ways the much more important lens, is that we need to think about systems level change in terms of large scale changes in policy and industry practice. And this is something that individual consumers have relatively little direct impact on beyond their advocacy as citizens. We can vote for politicians who are going to enact more sustainable policies. Um, and also as citizens, we can lobby for meaningful policy change that will for example, put a price on carbon emissions and um, provide incentives for more renewable energy and low energy alternatives and more sustainable water use alternatives. So we really need to think about both of those things operating at the same time, the individual level changes and the systems level changes. Leif, thank you. You're welcome. It's great to be on. Leif Van Boven is a professor in psychology and neuroscience at CU Boulder. He studies environmental decision making. We spoke in September. When we come back, the art and science of farming ice. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Jessica Duran. As a news intern for KRCC, I was able to report on stories and help inform Southern Colorado. CPR and KRCC offer opportunities like these and more to current students and recent graduates to set up the next generation for success. You can learn more about internships and fellowships at CPR.org jobs. When you're a farmer, you've got to work outside no matter the weather. But when your crop is ice, the colder, the better. Ure's ice farmers started out in the 1980s as a group of rebels, but it's now a uniquely skilled job that has transformed the former mining town into an ice climbing destination. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg has the story. A line of climbers swing their axes and plant their spiked boots into a wall of ice. Shattered bits fly off as the climbers inch up big frozen drips. 
It looks like an ice blue candle melted over rocks. This is the beginner's wall, one of hundreds of climbing routes at the Array Ice Park, all created by a small, skilled bunch. We're humble ice farmers. And this entire park, nearly two miles of ice, is their crop. On cold evenings, after the park closes down, Jason Watkins climbs into what looks like a concrete bunker. Attention all ice park staff, water is coming on to the north. Repeat, water is coming on to the north. He uses a huge piece of T-shaped metal, several feet wide, to open up a water pipe. The gravity-fed system brings water to hundreds of little sprayers lining the gorge. And then he and another farmer hike along the perilous edge and turn on each sprayer. The nozzles shake back and forth as they swell with pressure and sputter to life. Watkins always has a blowtorch handy in case a line gets frozen. It's a skill and it's an art and it's a science. By controlling the angle of the water and the amount of pressure, Watkins can create curtains of ice, waterfalls of ice, pointy ice daggers, climbable and stunning. You really get the artistry once you have a solid foundation of some ice, you can really start building it in interesting ways by orienting the sprayers, and that's up to, that's up to the farmer. Each one carrying on a tradition started by the original ice farmers. Operations manager Corey Guerra says they were just a few local guys. Rebels back in the 80s. The story goes that one winter day, as they gazed into the Uncompahgre Gorge, they noticed an old hydroelectric pipeline had a few holes in it. And water was forming these beautiful ice sculptures on the wall, and they, they maybe helped it along a little bit. Possibly making the holes a little bigger. It's debatable, maybe not, you know, depends who you ask. <laughs> Once they realized they could grow ice, they decided why not grow an entire frozen playground? Gara says in the beginning, it was pretty scrappy. The original farmers were out here with garden hoses. These days, the operation is much more sophisticated, with miles of PVC pipe threaded through the gorge. Gara says when ice farming is at full blast, they use 300 gallons of water per minute. It's crazy, truly. What we're doing, it borderlines on genius and crazy. And it's transformed this small town. Uray used to pretty much shut down in the winter. Now, tens of thousands of ice climbers flock to this nonprofit free park every season. The next morning, Jason Watkins sips his cold brew as he stands on a bridge overlooking the park. Conditions are borderline miserable, snowing, uh, kind of sideways. But one thing is perfect, the temperature. Tonight, it'll be far below 22 degrees, the threshold for ideal ice making. It's been a rough year. It's been warm and been really hard to make the ice. Some years, the park opens right around Christmas. This season, it was almost New Year's. So when Watkins peers down at those giant icicles, he feels proud. It's a labor of love. With a lot of labor. He arrived when it was still dark to turn off the water. And this morning, he still got to replace pipe up the gorge. He heads out on a 4x4, a long strip of wobbly yellow PVC strapped to the side. Tonight, when the crowds leave and the temperatures dip, Watkins will be here, 
to turn on the water and tend to the harvest that brings joy to climbers and big bucks that drive Uray's winter economy. At the Uray Ice Park, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. Singer-songwriter Antonio Lopez draws inspiration from his indigenous roots in the San Luis Valley. He grew up in Alamosa, where his family was also active in the Chicano civil rights movement. Through his lyrics, Lopez continues the tradition of speaking truth to power on subjects like mental health and human rights. Now based in Longmont, Lopez has released his sophomore album, Here We Are. Here's a single from the record. Lopez contrasts the secular and the sacred by comparing his experience with that of his grandfather, who belonged to the Catholic fraternal order Los Penitentes. Here's Secular Penitente. There is no back there's no out west. For the land that I stand on is where my ancestors rest. Longmont indie folk artist Antonio Lopez with Secular Penitente. His new album, Here We Are, is out now. I'm Chandra Thomas Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters on listener supported CPR News and KRCC. He only had to pay. He'd leave in the morning. Lunchbox stacks, returning the evening completely covered in 